Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. From Bloomberg News and iHeartRadio, it's The Big Take. I'm Wes Kosova. Today, why leaders around the world are paying close attention to upcoming elections in Turkey. Turkey's president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, has led the nation for 20 years now. But staggering inflation there and citizens' dissatisfaction with the government's response to devastating earthquakes earlier this year has led to a challenge to his power from an opposition candidate in the country's elections that will be held on May 14. And the criticism from opposition and Erdogan's critics has been that he has used the presidential system to only gain more power to do whatever he wants, and that has come at the expense of democracy. That's Bloomberg reporter Beryl Ackman in Ankara, Turkey's capital. Beryl and our colleague Sylvia Westall and Mark Champion are following events in Turkey, and they're here to tell us what's happening. It is a very pivotal election for everyone across the nation, because on one hand, we have one person in power right now who's been in power for two decades, who has ruled the country, which is President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. And in the last two decades, he has really centralized power and he's become the strongman of the country, micromanaging every single decision ranging from the economy to foreign policy and domestic politics. And on the other hand, we have an opposition that is unified for the first time, made up of six parties across the political spectrum from both right and left-wing parties. And they're criticizing Erdogan for diminishing human rights, cracking down on dissidents, uh, really cracking down on the opposition and centralizing power around himself. So the country is highly polarized in that sense. This election is taking place in the background of one of the worst cost of living crises in the country and the worst under President Erdogan's 20 years in power. It's also happening after two powerful earthquakes that struck Turkey's southeast in February, where the government really came under fire for their ill preparedness against the disaster, which killed over 50,000 people in Turkey alone. So the election is taking place as the government has taken a lot of heat, even from its own traditional voter base. And that's why people see it as a turning point that could end the political tenure of a politician that people have been used to, even a generation has grown up with. Mark Barrell talked about these six opposition parties, and they're not running independently, but are led by one man. Can you tell us about him? He's the leader of the Republican People's Party, which was Ataturk's party, the founder of Turkey. And his name is Kemal Kilicraroğlu. He's been on the political scene for a long time. 
It's not his first rodeo in terms of trying to unseat Erdogan, and he's not been particularly successful in the past. But it's interesting the way that he has really grown into this election campaign. You know, on the one side, you have Erdogan, who has a very familiar message and vision. He presents himself as this sort of very active, forceful leader of the nation. You know, last month, he was unveiling the fifth-generation aircraft, that fighter jet that the Turks are building at the moment. And uh, these are the kinds of things that he presses on. And when he goes on the campaign trail, he always talks about these big projects that he's done, you know, roads, bridges, uh, dams, all this kind of stuff. So this is his idea of a modern Turkey. And on the other hand, you have Kilis Larolu, who's a, a much softer spoken character. He is very much about saying that, look, it's time for a little less of this, a little less of the grandeur, and to really try and reconcile a nation that's become extremely polarized. A lot of it is about, look, we have to conserve our water supply. The rivers are drying up. We want to sit down, uh, reconcile with the EU, reconcile with our neighbors in the Mediterranean and try and figure some of this stuff out. Now, how much of that would actually happen is, you know, it's an election campaign. But the point is that it's a very different kind of message. And I think that's partly what's really quite interesting about this particular election. Silvia, one other reason why the opposition seems to be resonating is something that Beryl mentioned, which is really high inflation. And Erdogan has taken an unusual path to fighting inflation, which is the opposite of what economists usually do when they're trying to help the economy. The way in which the Turkish central bank has been operating has been very unusual when you compare it to what happens globally. So normally when you have high inflation, you would increase rates. But in Turkey, it's been the opposite. So he believes if you lower interest rates, you will increase supply. And that goes against general economic theory. And that's why Turkey's had this outlier status among global central banks. So and he's kept going on despite the fact that economic advisors and the central bank itself, there's been internal debate on what should be done next. But because the president of the country is calling for lower rates, that's what's been happening. And we've seen the effects kind of ripple across the Turkish economy with extremely high inflation. Last year, it hit 85% and above annually. It's sort of dipped since then. But in general, there's been this rampant inflation. And that's been something that's been feeding into voter sentiment ahead of the election. One thing that Erdogan has been focusing on is growth. He has been fixated on economic growth for a long time and has championed for low borrowing costs as long as he's been in power. President Erdogan gained more influence of the economic administration in 2018 when Turkey transitioned to an executive exclusive presidential system. The prime minister seat was abolished and the president acquired executive powers. One of the newly acquired powers was to appoint or sack the central bank governor or the monetary policy committee members anytime he wanted. And this has really raised speculation on the autonomy of the central bank as the central bank governors who clashed with Erdogan on monetary policy. When the central bank wanted to raise rates, for example, and Erdogan disagreed, they were fired with midnight presidential decrees. And uh, three central bank governors in about three years were fired, which has really raised speculation on how independent the central bank has been functioning, especially in controlling inflation, because they've been facing heavy political 
pressure from Erdogan. And with elections approaching, the president has really focused on cheap lending, especially to sectors he favors in his Turkey economy model, including exports and investment-oriented businesses. And the president's thinking is that if you have low borrowing costs, you'll um, increase investment, you'll attract investments, which thereby will increase production, increase employment, and really benefit the whole nation. But his thinking has really yet to be validated in real-time experience in Turkey. Exports are not doing well. Uh, they've been dampened and Turkey is really heavily dependent on energy imports, which has taken a, a huge toll on its current account balance and the deficit has been deep in red. This so-called thinking has been failing on a lot of parts and in, especially with households as well, their purchasing powers of citizens have eroded and many people think that despite official inflation, now, you know, dipping under 50%, that what they face in their homes and in their wallets is still much higher than that. Erdogan has a very large following and a large base of support. Who are his supporters and what is it about him that they find appealing after 20 years? Erdogan is this fiery, charismatic, strong man, and he has really flexed Turkey's muscles as this regional power. And raising really ambitions to become a global player now that we're seeing him placing Turkey as a mediator in the Russia's war on Ukraine. He's taken the central stage with Sweden and Finland's NATO bids. He's raised Turkey to the global stage and really has been ambitious in foreign policy. His voters traditionally have been the religious conservative base. When Erdogan first came into power, one of his main campaign points was that the country's conservative communities were repressed before through secularist leftist policies. So he really played on that. But in recent years, we've also seen him allying with the Nationalist Movement Party and really try to appeal to the national sentiment, nationalist voters as well. We've seen him both in this election campaign and in previous ones targeting the opposition's unofficial or informal alliance or support to the country's pro-Kurdish parties and the pro-Kurdish bloc. And he has really spoken out against Turkey's traditional Western allies like the US and the EU. So those all have had appeal to the nationalist and the conservative voter base. And that just is in full contrast to the opposition's presidential contender, Kılıçdaroğlu, who's very soft-spoken. And uh, a lot of people, at least in his traditional voter base, really seem to like that charisma and him being, you know, able to stand up to the traditionally big global powers like the US. There is a long arc to Erdogan's kind of role in the world. And I recall meeting him back just after his party had won election. And he was extremely cautious. He was extremely courteous. And he was very, very careful not to do or say anything that would make him appear extreme in any sense. And they were really, you know, he was really trying to get the West to accept him. And then, you know, I met him several times over the following years, I think three or four times between then and around 2011. And you could see him all the time becoming much more confident and eventually really reveling in upsetting the US in particular, Europe. He's found this to be domestically very fruitful in terms of voter support. 
Turkey is in general not a very pro-American country in particular, and that has really played out. Beryl, as Mark mentioned in the beginning, Erdogan was very accommodating and even somewhat timid. Now, no one would call him that. And in fact, over the years, he's greatly consolidated his power by changing the structure of Turkey's government. Can you describe that? Yes. So when Erdogan was elected, he started his national political career as a prime minister in 2002. And at the time, the presidential role was ceremonial. And this was how it was until 2017, when Erdogan decided to hold a referendum to transition Turkey from a prime ministerial parliamentary system to an exclusive presidential system where the prime ministerial role would be abolished. So when he acquired these new powers, I think Erdogan felt that he based his power on the people, saying that he was elected by the people. And it really gave him this power to change anything he wants and do legislation. And when he transitioned Turkey to this system, he had actually appointed to the U.S. as an example of how well things work. But there's a much better division of legislative and executive powers in the U.S. than there is in Turkey. And the criticism from opposition and Erdogan's critics has been that he has used the presidential system to only gain more power to do whatever he wants, and that has come at the expense of democracy. After the break, how Erdogan made Turkey and himself a force to be reckoned with in global politics. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. And a state of emergency has been declared overnight in Turkey following a powerful earthquake, which has hit a wide area in the southeast of the country. In Syria, 7.8 magnitude quake hit early this morning, toppling buildings and triggering a search for survivors. Mark, another big issue in this race is something that Beryl mentioned earlier, which is discontent about the government's response after the devastating earthquakes earlier this year. Yes, this is a particular problem for Erdogan. In many ways, this election, if you go back to when Erdogan and his party first came to power, the AKP, back then, it's 20 years ago now, but what they really pitched themselves as was a straight-shooting, relatively honest party that was actually going to get things done, that it was effective, it was efficient. And they talked, amongst other things, about earthquakes because this is a perennial issue in Turkey. There had been a big earthquake shortly before in 99. And here you are 20 years later, and there is a big earthquake out in the east, and tens of thousands of people die. And it becomes clear that the building regulations have not improved at all. And it becomes clear that relatively new buildings, as well as older ones that were built you know, before they came to power, were just collapsing like pancakes because they used all kinds of improper materials. There were systems by which people could get 
approval by paying a fee. So it really has sort of taken the emperor's clothes off in terms of that claim of being straight shooting, efficient, and all that sort of stuff. And it's left the area open for the opposition to say, they can't do this, we can. And you just put this together with the inflation and so on, and there is a sense that that sort of veneer of competence that for a long time was actually the the AKP was able to deliver on early in their in their rule, that that has really sort of shredded away. I do agree with you, Mark, but I also think that some people are, even in the earthquake zone, are confused by a six-party opposition alliance because Turkey politically has suffered a lot, especially older generations, from coalition governments that collapsed quickly and left the country economically much more vulnerable than it is now. So there's definitely, I think, a trauma, a generational trauma from the past. Sylvia, Beryl makes a really good point, which is part of Erdogan's appeal and really part of Turkey's influence is its important place in the larger global order. It's a member of NATO, and yet it often pivots between East and West, and that gives it outsized influence. Can you talk about why someone, say, sitting in Los Angeles, should really be watching this election? There's a generation that grew up with Erdogan, right? They don't really know anything different. And I think also that's in terms of foreign policy. So there's lots that we know about Turkey's foreign policy through the lens of this man. And it's quite difficult to imagine what it would look like without him being there. So I think that's sort of the way I've looked at that. And when I think about our coverage, every time there's a global story or something happening regionally, Turkey's usually there and it's usually Erdogan himself. He's here, there and everywhere, whether it's involvement in the Nordic bids for NATO, which he kept the world guessing and the world waiting on how Turkey would vote on that. And everyone was sort of watching what Turkey would do in order for them to be able to enter NATO. So one element where Erdogan's been very involved internationally is in the grain deal. And this is a deal that involves the UN, Turkey, Russia and Ukraine in order to get Ukrainian grain shipments out into global markets. And it requires all of them to be on board. And Turkey's been a mediator in this because it's trusted by all sides. And Erdogan himself has an important line to Russia's President Vladimir Putin. And I think when Turkey first talked about how it could help in this scenario and be a mediator, internationally, he wasn't taken that seriously. And then he actually did play an important role. Right now, we have the Turkish election coming up on May 14th. The grain deal's set to expire on May 18th, so right after the first round. So there is the question of how what happens at the election could affect this big international deal that affects global markets. And at the centre of that, there is this man. So he's there as well. He's also there when we talk about Syria. There's been a growing understanding or there's been reporting that Turkey is expected to embrace President Assad to bring Assad back into the regional fold, which is something that the US does not want. And again, at the middle of this is Turkey and Erdogan and what he wants to do, very pragmatic. So he's been pragmatic in his foreign policy too. In this position where Turkey is between East and West, he's made friends with old foes, whether that's in the Gulf, whether that's looking to Assad, and has looked at how Turkey can benefit from that. So I think when we look at Turkey, we look at how it's involved in many of these big international questions, in these deals, in these negotiations, and at the centre of it is this man. 
How Turkey Strikes a Delicate Balance Between Washington and Moscow when we come back. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Sylvia, despite Turkey's partnerships with the West, Erdogan's relationship with the U.S. and Europe has sometimes been a bit tense. Why is that? I think that in one way it's like many countries in the Middle East and that they are kind of in the middle. They know that in terms of power, they're not going to be like one of the big Security Council powers, that they can wield this real influence at that level. So they look at how they need to balance different powers' interests with them. So for Turkey, you've got Russia, which has supplied an important political uh, link. Uh, it's also been an economic lifeline. Russia is providing fuel for a Turkish nuclear plant. There was a ceremony last week to load Russian fuel into this Turkish reactor. So there are important economic ties there, but also it also wants to have relations with the West. So I think at times it has to balance this over. And that also comes with things like weaponry, with uh, air defenses that it's obtained from Russia and air defenses and, and equipment that it wants to obtain from the US. It has to kind of balance these different needs for its defense needs. So like many countries in the region, it's sort of looking at how it has to position itself as a medium power, right? It's not a big power. It's not a small country. It's in the middle. And being in the middle requires moving between different countries and trying not to take sides and then actually making up with countries that you didn't always get on with. And that will annoy. And I think the way in which you know I look at the region is that the US right now under um, President Joe Biden has very much looked at foreign policy in terms of values and looking at things in terms of black and white, you're with us or against us on things like Russia's invasion of Ukraine. If you support Russia or have ties to Russia, you are against the US and you're against Ukraine. But countries like Turkey would argue that foreign policy isn't about black and white, it's about shades of grey. And there are times in which it makes sense to cooperate with Russia and to keep the door open. Other times it doesn't. So, of course, you know, there is questions about sanctions violation, the flow of money from Russia, all these different perspectives. But like other countries in the region, the ones it doesn't always see eye to eye on in the Middle East, it actually would agree that you can't really see policy in terms of with us, without us, black and white. And those kind of arguments that these middle countries are making resonate quite strongly across other countries in the region. So, Beryl, the mechanics of the race, the election is held on May 14th. And then what happens? On May 14th, Turks will wake up and go to the ballots to vote both for uh, political parties. They uh, want to be represented in the parliament as well as a presidential candidate. Now, there might be a runoff on the presidential candidate two weeks after the May 14th vote if the presidential candidate is not able to get over 50% of the votes in the first round. And once that election is concluded on May 28th, if it does take place, then Turkey will determine its new president. So one reason why this election really resonates is that is just the date. You know, in 2023, this is the 100th anniversary of the republic that Ataturk founded. 
the date is not a coincidence. Erdogan has been working towards this with a view to kind of refounding the republic. The Ataturk was really secularized Turkey. And there was a whole mythology around it and, and him as the founder. And Erdogan has made it very clear he wants to kind of refound the republic with a, a different kind of ethos and really in his own image. And this is something that the opposition is trying to work against and to say there's a different vision that you can have for the next hundred years of the republic. And it, it doesn't have to be Erdogan's. Beryl, Sylvia, Mark... Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks for listening to us here at The Big Take. It's a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And we'd love to hear from you. Email us questions or comments to bigtake at bloomberg.net. The supervising producer of The Big Take is Vicky Virgolina. Our senior producer is Catherine Fink. Federica Romaniello is our producer. Our associate producer is Zenab Siddiqui. Hilda Garcia is our engineer. Our original music was composed by Leo Sidrin. I'm Wes Kosova. We'll be back tomorrow with another Big Take. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.